Hello, and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tehan, and I'm a portfolio manager with RWC Partners. In these podcasts, we hope to shed light on issues facing portfolio managers, analysts, and others within the financial industry as we grapple with climate change, the impact on the industry, and our role in supporting the transition to a low-carbon world. In this episode, I'm joined by Sonia Lau. Sonia is Chief Investment Officer of Legal and General Investment Management. She leads the firm's investment team, which spans trading, solutions, active and passive equities, and fixed income, as well as the multi-asset businesses. Her remit covers all aspects of investment, from research to portfolio construction, with a focus on leading Elgem's ESG strategy. It is Elgem's leading work on climate issues that we will focus on in this episode. Influence Map rank Elgem as the, at the very top of global asset managers for climate engagement and then climate re- resolution votes. With AUM of 1.6 trillion at the end of 2020, how the company engages and how it votes really matters. Prior to joining Elgem, Sonia was head of equity at Fidelity International, and earlier she worked for eight years at Schroeder's, where in fact, Sonia and I co-managed a number of equity funds together. With that, thank you, Sonia, for taking the time to join us on the CFA podcast. Before we get into the weeds, let's start at a high level. How has Elgem developed its approach and where might you see it going from here? Thank you, John. And um, thank you very much for, for having me to, at, on today's podcast. Elgem's approach to responsible investing, and let's, let's face it, climate is, is a part of responsible investing and, and clearly it spans other aspects as well, and, and really is embedded in, in the firm's culture and, and in, the, in the way we, we approach our um, responsibility as an active owner and, on, and, and acting on behalf of our clients. Our investment stewardship team is very well known in the market, and I think most listeners might have heard about um, Sasha Sadan, who in fact now left us to join the FCA to look after the um, investment stewardship and the ESG approach of the regulator. Our team has been established in 2000, and um, our voting records, I think, actually date back to the, to the 1980s. So it's always been in our um, interest to be an active owner and make sure that we approach investing with a very broad approach. Now, what has changed over the past 12 to 18 months really is that clients are coming to us and say, this is great that you're active. It's great that you have an approach to set minimum standards that you're heard in the market and that you're really engaging on behalf of all your clients. But there was a real approach to to say, what does it really mean for investments and how can you establish a much clearer and more transparent link between the great work of your stewardship team and the investment teams. And this is what we have really taken forward and which has been to some extent at the core in how we link um, our you know, platform like the Climate Impact Pledge to the way we construct portfolios. And what we've done is we have actually merged our credit and equity research and aligned our investment stewardship team to it. Because the way we look at it is that you know, ESG integration in a way just means you're taking a more holistic view on a company. You're just moving beyond looking at the PL, the balance sheet. So fundamental analysis as we've always done it. And you're adding a broader perspective to it. And we're doing this because point one, we feel we have a responsibility to address big societal issues. But point two, and maybe more importantly, we believe that these issues do carry financial materiality. And that means you have to include them in your investment process in order to deliver um, attractive and relevant investment propositions to your clients. That's very interesting. So 
can you just give me an idea of, of how then it has changed the role of your port, traditional portfolio manager and your traditional analyst? Are they really getting involved in this, in, in thinking about these issues and, and drawing from that, that, that research into their process? Absolutely, that's a, that is a great question because to me that really is at the at the core and at the um, at the center of what has changed. Because if you want to integrate it into the investment process, it is your analysts, it is your fund managers who need to be part of that process because they ultimately are the responsible owner of the decision making process. And so the ambition really is that investment decisions will be taken under consideration of ESG um, factors. Um, and that, importantly, does not necessarily mean that every fund will have a distinct ESG outcome and objective. I will come to that later. But it means that in order to take the right investment decisions, we believe ESG integration is the new standard. So this is really, it's an evolution of the fundamental research process in order to reflect what we would call 21st century business risks and opportunities. So what you're doing is you reflect that when we are asking a company now to have a much broader perspective in terms on, of, on supply chain, scope one, two, and three emissions, the impact of, of human rights violations, and, and all these factors, this is just a, a more holistic perspective. And the way we ask companies to deliver data on these points, the way we have to ask our investment professionals to integrate them in their analysis and to consider them when taking investment decisions. But it's this financial materiality that I think is at the core and people need to understand because there is the positive change, but it is to deliver the, the right risk return profile and obviously to deliver positive performance. And that's very different than the traditional model of the silo um, of investment and, and you have the central ESG function. So how have your analysts and portfolio managers reacted to that? You know, the, I guess the older generation would have been used to that focus purely on a financial model how is that how is that developed so as i said right at the at the beginning the this idea of responsible investing really is part of the investment culture and is part of the philosophy that elgem is is putting forward and in fact it it actually goes a bit further inclusive capitalism is what lng as a group is putting forward as its core vision and so you see there's a very natural way of from inclusive capitalism, you just go a step down towards the asset manager because legal and general investment management clearly is part of the legal and general group. And you have a far more natural combination and far more natural alignment with our focus on responsible investment as part of inclusive capitalism. What we did as well is we did not hire an ESG team. It was from the beginning a process that involved the entire investment team, and it was a journey that we that we went on collectively alongside our colleagues from investment stewardship. And um, obviously, in the meantime, you you know as well as I do, the whole regulatory change really obviously has put um, a real burden on the industry in order to be more transparent and clearer, more articulate, and clearly that we need to be able to demonstrate that what we are what we are claiming we are doing we we actually do. And um, in a way, I, I thought the journey was um, incredibly exciting. And um, you, you have really seen that there was a lot of buy-in from the beginning. And you know, at the latest, when you know, we came to the, to the regulatory integration, you, you have seen the last one joining in. And um, I think the fact that we didn't have a dedicated ESG team within investment has helped a lot. 
I think we made it clear from the beginning that this is the ownership of the investment team because it is about financial materiality and that you can't outsource. You, you need to own yourself because this is at the heart of what we're doing, making, making investment decisions on the, on the basis of our fundamental analysis. Thinking about that financial materiality, how do you establish that when you think in a more holistic way outside of the normal things we would have thought about in traditional research? As you will appreciate, it's not been straightforward across all sectors, right? I know we're talking climate in particular, and climate has clearly been at the forefront of what we, what we try to achieve and how we try to integrate it. But at the end of the day, financial materiality aims to quantify the risks and opportunities that arise from specific circumstances. And so climate risk, again, probably easier to quantify. We have um, our own climate model, and you clearly aim to look at the physical risks from climate change. You look at transitional risks from climate change, and you try to quantify which sectors obviously are most impacted by this. Again, it's very um, clear, I hope, that you know, the price of carbon, for example, that is a quantifiable impact on balance sheets if we were to get um, in particular to a global system of, of carbon pricing. But um, it's clear that not all sectors will be impacted equally. So what we have done is we have formed our global research and engagement groups because we said that ESG, sec um, ESG implications are not, are not evenly spread and you really need to allow the experts to consider what is most relevant on a sector level on a, on then, and then break it down on, on, the, on the country level. But it is really that, that um, focus on making sure that we are capturing it the right way. Having said all that, it's very clear if we come to human rights violations or um, factors that are less easily put into a, into a, a, a model framework, that um, it's, 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 it's more difficult to capture it. But, but what we do know is that human rights violations will carry reputational risks. So I need to consider it yet again in order to understand what the potential impact is on the future value of the company I'm, I'm trying to invest in. So it's the same concept, but I'm, I'm very clear that it's not as straightforward across all the factors we're looking at. And we have um, established really a heat map at the outset to figure out which factors would weigh most heavily on specific sectors and um, have, have you know, established, I think, quite a, quite a reasonable understanding, at least, on what we're going to look at. And I should finish, we have used the, um, the, the, the SASB framework as a guiding principle on how we, how we think about that financial materiality aspect. So thinking about climate change, the climate model that you have, how does that feed into the, the research that analysts and portfolio managers do and how does it impact in portfolio construction? So the, the climate model that we are using is a proprietary model. And we started the whole process probably a bit more than three years ago. And the starting point was defining the problem statement. Climate change is not a, it's not a regional issue. It's not a sector issue. It's a global problem. And as such, for us, the most important aspect was do we really understand the global problem statement? Do we understand what a potential solution on a macro level could look like? Because that is your starting point. Then from there, once we have established what the, tr the necessary transition in the global energy system looks like, to then start moving the macro model onto the micro analysis in order to establish point one, the sector impact, um, and then the actual company impact. 
And the way we have done it is to um, establish, again, physical transition risks for individual companies. And in order to make it more comparable, we have established a temperature alignment curve for each company that we are analyzing. And that gives you a very easily to understand and comparable measure because it gives you the, as of today, temperature alignment and the expected change in the temperature alignment under consideration of forward-looking data, i.e. we are looking at what the company is telling us. We are looking at how this fits into the um, expected change necessary. And it, that gives us an idea as well, whether we think the announced measures a company has been put forward are sufficient or not, because it's all about, obviously, how can we engage with a company for a, for a more effective um, proposition in, in the future. Those data points are feeding into the research process. And the aim is, we're not quite there yet from a technology point of view, that you will get this obviously on an aggregate portfolio level. So you would get on your fund, the current alignment and the future trajectory based on your current um, portfolio construction and the, and the current allocation. And um, the, the beauty is because it's our own model that obviously we know data points will change, the understanding will change, policies will change, but we can modify and hence obviously our analysis will always be up to date. And then have you found clients are looking for a certain temperature aligned portfolio? Is that where, where, where I guess it's going? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you, you will have seen the change in the regulation that pension funds in particular are now asked not only to produce a TCFD report, they need to uh, show how they have engaged with ESG integration in general, but they need to show as well um, how, they how they think about um, establishing a temperature alignment and uh, I'm pretty sure in the future in alignment with net zero. So this has been the most important topic in any client conversation we had this year. And um, most uh, obviously will still start with the analysis. Again, what I said in terms of the global problem statement applies to every client. Clients will come to us and say, here's my asset allocation. How bad is it? What's the problem statement I'm trying to tackle? And will then work with us or obviously with, with, with other partners as well to say, okay, identify the problem because very often you have clusters where, where, where most of your emissions will come from. Um, and then you can think about how you can align your portfolio over time. Some might need immediate correction, but for some is it's, it's really the journey and making sure that um, they have the right alignment path in, in, in place. And this is why the temperature curve is such an important and easy measure for them because that's their way to demonstrate how they have integrated climate considerations into their asset allocation. And then when the, your analysts and your portfolio managers are looking at that, that climate model and what it's saying about individual companies, does it give them an indication of stranded assets? Does it, does it then help you with the conversations that you have with those underlying companies? Yes, that is a really, really important point, John, because as of today, we know that roughly 25% of our global equity markets universe is aligned with Paris. So there's a lot of work to do in order for us to, to meet the timeline and obviously to meet the, the future objectives. And this is why engagement, we believe, has to be at the center of the process. So understanding the problem, understanding the problem on the company level is really key to define the engagement themes and really to be in a position 
to speak to a company eye to eye to say where we think, you know, changes need to happen in order for the company to enhance the alignment that we're currently seeing. It's such a small minority still that really has gotten ahead of the curve in order to align themselves that I really see the responsibility of the asset management industry and obviously working with our clients. We should never forget we're managing money on behalf of our clients, but this educational process is equally important that we understand how much work there's yet to do and that um, with the transparency that we are putting forward, we aim to, to address this. So, but um, it, it, it's important as well that clients understand that we are not there yet. We cannot construct a portfolio as of today, which is which is all green, because it would ignore the fact, and you mentioned stranded assets, that there is um, a lot that we need to address in order to get everyone really on, on the same path. It's not just about divesting, and maybe it's a, it's a good point, you might want to come to that, but divestment clearly has been a, a very popular tool to express a very distinct view, in particular around climate change but it ignores the fact that the transition has to happen across all the, the dirtier sectors, i.e. the oil and gas industry, cement industry, industry and other industrial companies. And um, it, it requires a holistic understanding and proper engagement across all of them in order for us to be successful in tackling climate change. We've certainly got to touch on divestment. It's a, it's a bit of an obsession of mine, but before we get to that, you talked about the 25% of global equity market that's aligned with the Paris Agreement. How do you get comfort that they are aligned? There's a lot of different language used from vision to commitment. How do you get comfortable with these pledges? Again, a very good question, because clearly this is based on our analysis. And this is why, again, the engagement and the evolution of the modeling and the understanding of data points is such an important ingredient, because it is obviously, as you just said, it is all about staying close to these companies to see what they have put out there in terms of their strategic vision actually is happening and is, is not only happening, but delivering against the targets that the company has put out there. And this is, this is clearly what um, you can only do if you stay invested. And if you uh, have a really good and thorough understanding of what the company has been telling us um, in order to judge what, whether the strategic direction of travel will, will in fact deliver. But I think we, we all have to accept that there is um, an enormous amount of uncertainty um, baked into this. And this is why um, you know, I believe fundamental research is a very key ingredient in, in developing our understanding and really working with companies to, um, to get to the right outcome. Transparency, to my mind, is incredibly important. This, this cannot be a behind closed doors conversation, and it cannot be a behind closed doors analysis that that we that nobody can double check, cross check. It is it is really about being being a partner and, and being part of the journey and making sure that we we are seen as a partner in that. Can we talk a little bit about your climate impact pledge? It has got quite a lot of press, a lot of a lot of um, good press. So can you talk us through it and what that helps you to do? Yes, the Climate Impact Pledge actually is now coming um, into its fifth year. So we had last year the, the fourth publication on, on the back of this and really originated in the core belief we have within our investment stewardship team, which is raising market standards, developing what is the, the minimum hurdle companies need to clear in order for us to be satisfied that, this, that, that they're moving in the right direction. And climate change being such an important topic, 
it is very clear that we need to lift all boats in a very short period of time. And hence for us, and, and a very transparent approach to say, we, we need to um, make sure that all companies know what we are looking for when it comes to the assessment of climate related metrics. The, um, the, the, the climate impact pledge went, uh, obviously we have reviewed the methodology and we've actually last year um, broadened the universe and we have um, broadened the metrics we're, we're looking at. The only way we can approach a thousand companies and um, say we, we've looked at you is through data. So it's a, it's a data-based methodology with very clear categories with regards to what we're looking for and what we would like companies to embed in their reporting. And um, don't get me wrong, there's of course a lot of um, kind of red flags that potentially are an oversight. There's a missing data point, there's lack of disclosure. Not all red flags at this point are true red flags. So this is important to understand. But in our attempt to really lift all boats and make sure we're raising minimum market standards, this is the only way how you can really um, uncover you know, wh where some of the big gaps are. And um, we always said we will make sure that obviously then we will engage with those where we have a, um, a red flag of concern. We will reach out and there's always time for the company to engage with us to rectify what might be just um, a missing data point. But it is an engagement with consequences. So if we feel that the company is not engaging and um, is not addressing climate change the right way, at the end of the day, we will divest across our future world flagship range because we feel that is the only way how we can really show that we are serious in our way to address climate change. And uh, I think there's a, it's, a, it's a great way of showcasing engagement as well, because I should um, add, we are reinstating. When a company is addressing that the, the, the concerns raised, then we will reinstate them in our funds. And I think that's the whole idea. This is not just you know, naming and shaming. This is a consequence, yes, but with the, with the right intent of helping a company to rectify what we have identified as clear kind of shortfalls in the company's strategy to address climate change. So, so that climate impact pledge and, and the ratings that come out of it, that will drive your engagement and I'm guessing your voting at the AGM season. So is that... This, this year, and it's on your website, how you voted against Shell's transition plan, and you voted for the shareholder proposal from Follow This, that was driven by your climate impact pledge. Yes, that was uh, to a large extent um, based on us knowing the company quite well, and the outcome from, from the climate impact pledge. So the way we would um, look at the voting always is a bit more holistic than just the climate impact pledge in particular when it comes to obviously um, large companies like Shell and in a sector that is so important to the transition, we want to make sure that we've looked at all aspects, but you're right, we have voted, as you said, because we felt there was not sufficient detail in that transition plan and probably not ambitious enough near-term targets to really get there. I think this is what you alluded to earlier. It's nice when companies tell you, but obviously we need to double check that and plans that are put forward that are as serious as a net zero alignment, that um, there's, there's sufficient detail for us to get comfortable that in fact, with those measures being put in place in the future, that company has a realistic chance to meet net zero. So obviously it's been a very difficult year for the oil majors. Um, 
not that we'll have a lot of sympathy for them, but obviously they do have a difficult task in, in transitioning, which Shell in particular. So you will have voted against them. Uh, and I'm guessing you are now conveying to management exactly what you're looking for. So that when it comes to the AGM next year, you will you potentially could be in a position to support them. Yes, and this has this is the key principle. Transparency, yes, but then we, we need to be very detailed as well in order to allow the company to understand what's been missing. Because it's not just about raising concerns. We need to be in a position as well to give a company very clear and detailed um, feedback on what we thought was missing and what we want them to do. Otherwise, it, it would not be a, a kind of partner partnership and it would not be a joint journey. So this, this only works if we have um, clear insight and a good understanding of what we would like to see. But it's exactly as you said, that is the, um, the, the, the targeted process. We raise concerns, we vote potentially against a company, but then with a clear engagement plan of what we would like to see so that clearly there hopefully is a, is a positive resolution then next year. Remuneration policies is another area, another lever, if you like, to try and move companies along on climate change. Is there anything in particular you've been looking at here or any metrics or targets that you're, you're trying to get companies to put into their remuneration policies? That's actually been um, a topic with Shell. Actually, we've been involved with them for, for quite some time. Because in, in a way, if you think about how remuneration fits into um, overall ESG targeting, again, it's a natural evolution, right? I mean, in the past, we would have asked the uh, remuneration committee on the board to link the executive compensation to um, average, you know, EPS growth and, and margin expansion. And you would have um, a, a, a set of key metrics that, you know, as a shareholder, you would like to, to see being met and you want obviously executive compensation being linked to it. So naturally, if you think about what I said earlier, if we now say about the financial materiality aspect, then uh, that, that ESG factors carry, then logically you have to align your compensation to some extent. Clearly you want measurable KPI. You don't want any vague description of what the, the CEO or the executive team is to, to, to deliver. But um, clearly around climate change now, there's, there's a lot more that um, we ask companies to show. There's a clear focus on companies to deliver a net zero plan. And um, I don't see a reason why compensation should be excluded from um, a way to enforce that, that these targets are met. And so again, the same way I, I think about the evolution in fundamental analysis and how we've judged companies in the past, that's a nat natural evolution on how I think companies should think about how um, executive teams should be remunerated. And then thinking about ASEAN climate, are you in favor of this mechanism that companies would have this in their AGMs every year? Yes, I think we, in, in, in principle, um, we, we think that is clearly, again, an evolution that um, should be uh, brought to shareholders' attention. Um, again, I think there is probably, um, you know, if you think about the, the way it impacts different sectors, we want to make sure that we um, accept that there, there might not be a one-fits-all simply because of the different, um, uh, the different impact levels. But again, I think in the in the interest of transparency, it, it should be something that um, shareholders have a, a, a better understanding, greater transparency, and hence um, a say on. Um, and I sometimes struggle with, you know, where, where to balance between pushing management and giving them space to execute. And then if you have a say on climate every year, whether that's appropriate or whether we should have it every few years. So what, what's your view on that? 
No, I, I agree because it's um, we have to accept that the transition is obviously something that will occur over a number of decades. Now, if we think about the average CEO tenure, we, we know that there's a mismatch. And as such, you, you quite rightly say, you know, it, can we really measure every year tangible, you know, improvement or, or tangible uh, progress and whether a company that has put, let's say, a five-year plan in place, probably, yes, we want to make sure that the transparency around intermittent steps is there. But I think I agree that um, voting on it every year might not be the most appropriate use of everyone's time and, and might just overburden uh, the, the AGM schedule. Um, and, and we should not forget that most businesses clearly will have a lot of other things to report on. Um, and climate change is a very important one. But from a time frame alignment, probably not necessarily one that, that has to come back every year. Then there's the question of and showed in Shell where some investors voted for the shareholder proposal and also for the transition plan. This year, I guess there was more of an indication or a sign that more investors or shareholders are waking up. Do you see that? Obviously, Elgin has been alive to these issues for a long time. BlackRock seems to be waking up to the AGM on, on these issues. What do you see? It's clearly, um, we're both based here in Europe where I think the level of awareness, the level of integration, the understanding of climate change in, 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 its, in its holistic way is different to other parts of the world. I think we are still seeing that um, there is, yes, greater awareness in general, but I think Europe is way ahead of um, some of the other regions in, in the world. It will be very interesting to see um, how the COP26 platform is um, going to change that, if at all. But I think the hope is that it, that it will. Because as you say, there, it is establishing a common understanding, common metrics, or at least a common understanding of what we are measuring and, and how we think about implications on different sectors and, and different companies. There's a long way to go. And I think this is why we have seen in the past different views on how to vote, on how to address this, simply because we, we probably have not had the same understanding and the same level of uh, insight in terms of the modeling in, 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 with regards to the implication. We're, we're still not there yet. I think data point, uh, data in, in general is still a big, a big issue in order to establish a level playing field in terms of the analysis. I don't think we're really in analyzing apples to apples when it comes to different companies, different sectors across different geographies. And that has to be a key focus to address this in order to make sure that, because if we, you know, if, if, you, if we want to make this a more prominent feature, we want shareholders to have a say and to be involved, then you need to be, you know, you need to make sure that your um, finance, your your investment professionals are um, in the know, and and really this is a constructive dialogue between um, shareholders and the company, because otherwise uh, it, it it will probably not get us to the end result we're looking for, and as I said, it's getting better, but it's um it's still a long way, it's still a long way to go. Moving on to divestment, I promised we'd get back to it. There are lots of mixed signals being sent to the energy companies in particular. 
in one way they're being divested by many endowments and foundations and, and pension funds. And another way, as, as responsible investors, we want them to hold onto their assets and run them down. So there are lots of mixed signals there. They will be more highly rated in, 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 in an ESG score if they just sell them off, even though that's not really helpful to, to, the, to the planet and to reducing climate warming. How do you see it? Um, I, I think I've uh, highlighted earlier that divestment is part of the investor's toolbox. Right. And, and we, we've said earlier, um, engagement with consequences means if a company really refuses to change, eventually you, you have to divest. Right. There has to be a discipline around if you ask a company to um, you know, put changes in place and in particular around climate change, obviously to, to live up to the timeline as well. If the company really isn't doing it, then there has to be a consequence. And given you know, our size at Elgin in particular, that, that then should all hopefully uh, be, be something that the company is, is thinking about and is considering. But as you quite rightly say, divestment is a very crude you know, way of, of expressing a view. And in a way, you could argue, simply shifts the responsibility to deal with a problem to somebody else. Because you cannot assume that, that the other investor that you're then handing your shares over to has the same interest um, that then you have and, and might not have the same interest in, in ESG-related um, issues. And engagement to us has to be at, at the center of, of what we are doing in order to address these big societal issues like climate change. And in particular for oil and gas, you've highlighted a very important point. It is, <laughs> we, we, we shouldn't assume that all the oil and gas companies in the world will turn into renewable energy companies because that would still raise the problem of the, of the assets that they currently own. And the, this problem of stranded assets, I, I think is not um, widely enough understood in, in what this actually means. And that actually there is a plausible strategy for an oil and gas company to run off these assets responsibly. We cannot ask them all to just invest in wind farms and solar because it will not solve the problem. Because we should not forget, oil and gas is part of the transition. We're we are, we are trying to transform the global energy system where large parts of the global economy still face energy poverty, are growing dramatically, and try to establish a, a balance between reducing greenhouse gas emissions while still obviously increasing the, the energy base because they have to provide electricity to a growing number of, of households. I mean, India is, I think, a really good example where energy poverty is still a real problem. And yet, obviously, we know that India is using coal as the dominant um, uh, energy source in, in the country. So that requires a very, very holistic plan on how you allow that country to meet the rising energy demand while at the same time uh, re removing coal from the system. And that is divesting will not help in that instant. What, what, what do you want this country to do? You will you literally shut off um, the electricity supply. And, and this is where then obviously regional plans come in. But I think we will hopefully see a much more open debate around um, the inequality aspect here and the cost for the transition and who, who is actually going to pay for it. So then would you be more lenient on a company that has got more exposure to, to India or to emerging markets where there is those there are those concerns and there is the, the just transition issue? Um, no, I think there's still, obviously, that there should be a, a principled approach, 
but I think you're, you're right. You, you can't look at India the same way you would look at, at Germany because coal to me in particular is at least you need to align your investment strategy to the, the country's you know, plan around the transition. Um, and again, it's, it's more comfortable because in here in Europe, we have from, from most a very clear, um, a clear trajectory on how the energy mix is going to, going to change. And hence, we can have a very principled approach on how we look at the companies that still might operate um, coal or, or even mine coal, um, and hence can establish a, a divestment policy on the back of this. And for countries like, like India and emerging markets in general, um, you can probably, for, for the time being, obviously exclude those where you, know, you have 100% of, of the revenue mix coming from, from coal, in particular, obviously, depending then what your clients want, because very often for, for emerging markets, you will get a direction from the client on how they would like to look at this. But there should be a, a, a coal policy that applies to everywhere. But for us, in, in our case, for example, um, there is still we, we still allow for companies that have some coal mix because we know about the importance obviously these countries have in, in those countries. Now, within our mix, we are, we are obviously far heavier geared towards Europe, and hence the policy can be applied far more evenly. But I think it requires a, a more holistic approach to emerging markets and how we think and these countries should address this, which I think, to be fair, it is not yet, is not yet in place. And coming back to the oil majors, and if we just think more at high level, I guess it's more focused on capex and about offsetting emissions rather than pushing them to divest the fossil fuels assets that they have. Yeah, it's, this is where obviously our climate model helps a lot, right? Because there you get a really good understanding and it's actually in a way um, a bit easier for the oil and gas majors to establish this temperature alignment curve because you have the current asset mix, you have a good understanding on um, where they where they are and, and how they what their what their natural lifespan looks like. Um, and then obviously you have from all of them by now a, a plan on how net zero is going to look like, including divestments, including obviously uh, investment into renewable energy um, and including offsets. And that gives us a good idea on um, how their temperature alignment curve looks like and whether we feel in the instance of Shell, we need more detail because we can't really see how this is going to work or whether we, we've, we, we feel that the alignment is good. But yes, the, at the, we, we try to look at the planned strategic changes in the overall mix, but we would not push a company to, as I said earlier, a bit flippant that you, know, you move from oil and gas into renewable energy, because we are fully aware of the stranded asset problem and, and the fact that them just selling it might not be the solution we're all looking for. Given the energy crisis that we've, we're seeing materialize in, in, in Europe and all over the world, actually, um, through this autumn, and the Prime Minister here in the UK and the business sector has talked about nuclear energy. Do you take, does Elgin take a view on, on, on nuclear power and how that fits in to try and get fossil fuels out of the system? Before I answer that, I think it's, um, it's an interesting and um, very relevant wake-up call to some extent that if we, the, the way we talk about transition always assumes that you can switch from one energy source to the other in a, in a reasonably seamless way. And as we now see, it does not take much to actually have to produce quite a significant disruption and dislocation 
in, in, a, in a global um, energy source that um, obviously increasingly we've been quite reliant on. Um, and as my head of climate um, strategy tells me, it's probably the one market that's been least understood because gas, obviously, as you know, is, is a byproduct. And uh, it's, uh, he says it's, it's fascinating how little we've actually known around the, the global context of, of gas market because it's always been a pretty regional um, setup. But that as an aside, I think it is just so important to understand that with these assumptions we are taking to shift the global energy system in the shortest period of time, where, when compared to history, we normally looked at 100 year transition periods. We are now thinking about doing this in a 10, 20 year time period. And um, we have to assume that this is not the last time we're looking at gas prices jumping 20% in any given day. It creates a very interesting um, you know, dilemma as well, because I think the other aspect is um, is who's who's carrying the cost for the transition and who who's carrying the cost for potential dis dislocations and disruptions? So there's there's a lot in here which I think um, actually is, is very helpful and hopefully will create the right dialogue and and the right level of dis discussion. Um, now I forgot your question. Well, we were just as nuclear as part of that transition fuel. So we um, so I'm from Germany. Um, so. <laughs> There's obviously a very distinct view on, on nuclear, um, although other European neighboring countries still obviously see nuclear as, as part of it. We, we don't have a, a nuclear policy, and as such, um, we clearly have, have seen this as part of the, of the energy mix, but we have, don't have a strong view on um, whether this should be a um, longer-term solution. The focus we have is, is far more, obviously, on, um, on renewable energy and how this can um, this can replace majority of, of the oil and gas proposition. There's been a lot of criticism recently on ESG. We've seen it in the FT and Robert Armstrong leads the, I guess, the more critical assessment of ESG in, in that publication. And then we've had articles in Institutional Investor, who is one notably called the Trillion Dollar Fantasy. And of course, we've had uh, Tarek Fancy, the BlackRock uh, ex-CIO of Sustainable Investing. And Tariq in particular, he makes the point that, that ESG is a deadly distraction. It's just stopping governments doing what they should do. And a lot of the points he made resonated, but what's your view on, on those criticisms? So as you, as you just said, I think he's raising a few points we, we, we probably um, agree with. Um, but so if, if I just repeat once, once more what I said earlier, if you believe that ESG factors are financially material, then they should be part and parcel of the investment decision. That to me is, is, the, is the very important base assumption. And I think you will not find anyone today who does not think that climate change could potentially be financially material, not only for oil and gas, but for, for every company. And, and with that in mind, um, I accept that there is still limitations in the way uh, we can we can integrate as we have we have data issues we have don't really have all the data points yet but then if you, if you if you start with this premise of financial materiality then it is more the question around the evolution and the improvement rather than whether we are doing this or not and to me ESG integration is as I said earlier a reflection of 21st century business risks and opportunities so to me it is an integrated part and integral part of fundamental analysis now, the product 
um, question and the product evolution on the back of this, again, as a standard, probably would tell you that a product in the future will have alongside your average yield, the average PE, everything we showed in the past, right? The, the attribution analysis, and it will probably have a temperature curve and it will have carbon intensity, but as a standard, because it is a risk factor. And I think um, that, that to me is the evolution that I think would be very healthy. And then there's, uh, I, I think there will be products that will allow clients to express a view on what they would like to see integrated in their financial product. And this will be predominantly climate-related products in the, in the first wave, but we see a lot of focus on the SDGs and, um, and, and other outcomes that, that are relevant. Now, when it comes to the, this idea that the financial sector could solve all the big societal issues, of course not. But, but, but that, I think, I'm, I'm not sure whether anyone in the asset management industry really accepts, would accept that claim that we are here to, to solve for um, climate change. And I hope that with the examples we've discussed earlier, that's very clear. The, the, the Indian government, needs to be very heavily involved in any transition plan that this country will have to go through in order to, to address um, greenhouse gas emissions and coal in particular. And um, the cost question is the, is the next one. We, we cannot solve for who's now paying for a spike in electricity prices. Um, and, and I think hence the collaboration between um, you know, the, the, the public sector and us as financial um, managers and financial intermediaries is incredibly important. And the, the last thought as well is, I think we've learned a lot from COVID as well, that um, national responses will probably not do the trick and that a global problem statement requires global collaboration. But to my mind, it would be good if we would have a more open discussion. I think there's actually lots of agreement on where are the areas that global collaboration is most needed. And I think it starts with what we ask companies to report on the framework for the, the analysis and, and the data points, the data accuracy. So there's lots of points, I think, where there's genuine agreement on how to take it forward. And there probably has to be more open discussions as well on the limitations of what we can achieve. But clearly to me, positive change through engagement and the awareness within the investment process is absolutely in our gift. And I think it's the responsibility of our industry to, to pick up on. I completely agree with you. ESG is about protecting our investments. What impact we can make in the wider world, we, we understand our limitations and we, we, can't, we can't lead people or clients or society to believe that we're the, the answer. In thinking about that with COP26, what would you like to see coming out of it? We need governments to make decisions. So what would you like to see coming out of that event? I think not surprisingly to me, the focus really is on the US. Um, we know that President Biden's, you know, one of the first decisions he's taken is to realign the US with the Paris Accord. And now there's big expectations, I would think, that uh, towards COP26 and whether he will use it as a platform to share with the world on how the US will, will continue this journey and what other measures he, he will put in place. It's, it's still really interesting that the the way you know the two of us talk about it from an, from an investment point of view, you would not see to the same extent across you know large parts of the U.S. asset management industry. And I think you know although there has been more recent change, I think there's a lot more that that needs to happen because 
if we want to see greater global collaboration, you need obviously the US being part of that and you know the US financial system being part of it. And Europe clearly has been um, far ahead with regards to the understanding of how this should work. You know, we have seen more regulation coming out um, here in Europe that aims to address uh, the, the, the backdrop and, and aims to establish a more holistic framework. Um, it would be great if we could see this because we are a global asset manager trying to piece it all together across the different jurisdictions would be massively helped if we treated it as a global problem statement and we allowed a like-for-like -like comparison between uh, US oil and gas, Asia oil and gas, and Europe oil and gas, because we are asking all the companies to provide the same data and to provide the same um, disclosures uh, around the world. Well, Sonia, thank you so much. We could chat for, for, for several more hours on this subject, I think. It's been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much. Let's hope that COP26 comes out with some very positive news and agreements from, from the international, international community. But thank you again. Great. Thank you so much for having me.